Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. Right, we're going to transition from worship and song to worship in the Word. I'm going to read today's text. It's Luke 12, verses 35 through 48. It says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door for him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third or finds, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what, the hour, at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all. And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whom the master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him in an hour he does not know and will cut him into pieces, cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And the servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will receive, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what was deserved and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is the word of God for the people of God. Nope, there we go. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all this morning. My name's Bradley. I'm one of the elders. If you're new to Res, we want to welcome you and tell you that we're so glad you're here. So Res, welcome our guests that are here this morning. Um, I, I imagine that most, if not every hand in this room is going to go up when I ask this question. Um, how many of you have participated in or been to a wedding where the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, was read at some point during the ceremony. Raise your hand if you've been to a wedding where that happened. Yeah, that, that's like, what? That's what you do at a wedding, right? You read 1 Corinthians 13. Is it startling to you, though, to think about the fact that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 is nowhere near the subject of marriage? It's not at all what he's talking about. 
In in, in 1 Corinthians 13, if you look at the context of it, it's really three chapters of thought right there, 1 Corinthians 12 through 1 Corinthians 14. Paul is on the subject of what? Does anybody know? Spiritual gifts. So you know what the point of the love chapter really is? It's actually, should a husband love his wife with patience and kindness? Absolutely. Should we love in general with patience and kindness? Absolutely. So it's not like we can't learn some things about love in general or specifically about marital love from 1 Corinthians 13. But here's the point of 1 Corinthians 13, is that apart from a proper understanding of spiritual gifts exercised in love for the benefit of others, we're not going to be able to experience the kind of love and fellowship that God intends his people to experience with each other. In other words, spiritual gifts are an essential part of loving one another. Here's what I would say, if you, if you want to take 1 Corinthians 13 and make it about love and marriage, here's what I would say. The point of 1 Corinthians 13 is actually better than that. Not that love and patience and kindness are not wonderful truths, but if I want to learn about marital love, I need to go to Ephesians 5. If I want to learn about spiritual gifts exercised in love, I want to read 1 Corinthians 13. Here's the point. The treasure of every text is the point or the emphasis that the biblical author is making in that text. A lot of times, people make applications that aren't wrong. They might even be good. They might even be biblical, not heretical, but they make these applications from the wrong texts. Because that's not what the biblical author is focused on. Now, what does that have to do with where we are? In Luke chapter 12, we've got a similar issue. When you hear Jesus say things like, servants being on alert, not knowing when their master might return, or the Son of Man is coming at an hour you might not expect, what do you think of? Second coming, don't you? How many of you have heard this taught? That that's the point. This is about his second coming. What if I were to tell you that's not at all what Jesus is focused on? Does that make you nervous? What if I were to tell you the point that Jesus is making is actually better than that? Now, i got to qualify that because you might be thinking, Bradley, what could be better than to hear Jesus talk about his second coming? Listen, knowing and believing that Jesus Christ will come again at some point in the future is biblically essential. It is right and good for us to pray and to sing, to say together, even so, Lord, come. I would never in any way want to tell you that the second coming of Christ is in any way less than. You with me? But... The point of Luke chapter 12 is better than that because whatever Jesus is focused on is what we want to pay attention to. And in Luke chapter 12, in this discourse, whatever he's focused on in this moment is the greater treasure. When you read your Bible, what you want to discover in any given text is what 
are the biblical authors, or in this case, Jesus, what is he focused on right here? And I don't think it's the second coming of Jesus Christ. I met with the elders on Monday. And I went into that elders meeting, and we opened our Bibles, and we started to read this text. And I said to them, I said, guys, I don't think this is about the second coming. And I fully expected them to go, you know what, Bradley, you're, you're just, we love you, uh, and we appreciate you, but you're just way off. We're going to have to you know, rein you back in. But you know what they said? We don't either. And then I went and met with Brian Onkin. Many of you know them. We, we are, myself and all the elders, we looked to him for guidance a lot. I went and met with him on Wednesday morning, and I said, Brian, I don't think this is about the second coming. And he kind of grinned, and he looked at me, and he said, I'm glad to hear you say that, because I thought I was going to have to spend the majority of our time together this morning telling you this was not about the second coming. <laughs> now, if you're sitting here this morning, and you're starting to think to yourself, you know what, I, I'm, I might want to question Bradley about this. Here's what I would say to you. You should. You absolutely should question me about this. You should question our elders about this, because I'll be candid with you. We are in an exegetical minority when it comes to this. I rarely look at commentaries. You know, most of the time what I do in, in, when I'm preparing to teach is I will just comb over the text with a fine-tooth comb. I'll make all my notes. I'll write down all my questions. I'll wrestle with it. I'll, I'll, I'll make notes. I'll start to form an outline, get a sense of what I think the text is saying. And then, on occasion, I will go to pastors and commentators that I know and trust just to check myself. And usually that's against guys like John Piper, R.C. Sproul, John MacArthur, Tim Keller, occasionally Chuck Smith. Some of those guys are dead. But here's what I'll tell you. All those heavy hitters would disagree with us on this. Most of the time, there are a few, most of the time when this text is taught, it's taught as if what Jesus is focused on is his second coming. Now, here's what we're going to do, okay? This is going to be fun. And, and, and you are absolutely free to go, no, that's wrong. Don't amen if you don't agree. <laughs> but we're going to take our time. Over the next few weeks, we're going to work from Luke 12, verse 35, through chapter 13, verse 9. And we're going to do it slowly. The majority of today is going to be me making the case of why I don't think this is about the second coming and what I actually think it is about. And we're going to get to about verse 40 today, and then we'll pick it up again next week. Don't miss the next few weeks. I know it's vacation season, so if you're out of town, watch online, track with us, read ahead. Ponder this, stew on this. Let's wrestle with this together because... I think there's something wonderful for here, here for us to see, but if we come to biblical text assuming, how many of you know we're not going to find anything except what we think we already know? So the best thing we can do is read with fresh eyes. Pretend like you don't know anything about Jesus' second coming. Pretend, put yourself in the disciples' shoes and this crowd's shoes, and what are they hearing? What is Jesus saying to them? That's what we need to focus on. So, the large chunk of the uh, next large chunk of this sermon is going to be about the broader and immediate context, and then we're going to dive into verses 35 to 40. So, let's start with the broader context. 
Stay in Luke, Luke chapter 12. These few verses won't be on the screen, but just look in your Bibles with me and let's get the context. Jesus at this point is talking primarily to his disciples, so the 12 plus a few, and there seems to be a lar- very large crowd, Luke says thousands, that are pressing in and kind of eavesdropping on these conversations. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together, that word is myriads, thousands of people, they were trampling one another. He began to say to who? His disciples. First, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now skip down to verse 13. He's talking to his disciples, and then someone in the crowd, verse 13, said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now skip to verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Remember, Jesus is an indiscriminate sower of seed. We've learned this. He scatters seed, and some falls on good soil, some falls on bad soil. I think this Jesus is intentionally doing this. He's talking to his disciples while a crowd of people are pressing in to the point of trampling one another and listening in to this conversation. So let me ask you the question. Does it make any sense whatsoever that Jesus would be talking to his disciples People, mind you, that he's only recently told them, I'm going to die. He says, who do you say I am? You're the Christ, the Son of God. They've come that far, and then he drops this bomb on them. I'm going to die, and I'm going to be raised, and if you want to come after me, you're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to give up life on your terms and follow me. That's what the disciples are grappling with, and that was a private conversation. The crowds weren't there when Jesus told them, yes, I am the Christ and I am going to die. So does it make any sense whatsoever that Jesus would be looking at these guys who are struggling to get their heads around, he's the Messiah and he's going to die, while intentionally letting thousands of people listen into this conversation who weren't there when he told them he was going to die, that now he's going to say, all right, let me tell you about something that's going to happen thousands of years from now, long after you're gone. Does that make sense? Does it make sense that Jesus would be talking over their heads in that way? I don't think so. I don't think Jesus says things to people that they cannot grasp. And for a long time, I thought there were places in the Bible that where Jesus would say things in the Gospels, for example, that really were of zero benefit to the people he was talking to. And really, he was saying, you know what, guys, just listen to this and write this down because a few thousand years from now, there are going to be people in Greer, South Carolina in the year 2022 who will understand what I'm talking about, but you just write this down. Don't worry about it. Makes no sense. Furthermore, I don't think Jesus has changed subjects. All of the pastors and commentators and exegetical scholars that I mentioned earlier conclude 
that between verses 34 and 35, there's a hard stop where Jesus essentially says, all right, let's talk about something else. I just don't think that's the case. I think there is a thematic flow in a large chunk of Luke's gospel that goes all the way back to chapter 11, verse 14, where the question is raised, is he casting out demons by the power of Satan? Essentially, the question is raised, is what this guy Jesus is doing, is it a God thing or not? You remember that? And what happens right after that? From there, Jesus gets invited to a Pharisee's house where he challenges their religious facades and calls them to embrace this fact. Guys, what I'm doing, it's a Yahweh thing now. What I'm doing right now is a God thing now. And you best get on board with that or it's not going to go well for you. From there, he begins to instruct his closest followers. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of that. Don't fear those who can kill you. Fear God. Say what you will against the Son of Man, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, essentially, if you conclude that what I'm up to is not a God thing, it's not a Holy Spirit thing, it's not going to go well for you because God, Yahweh God, is up to something right now. He's doing something through me right now. And you best perceive that. You best recognize that. You best change your thinking and receive the truth. God is up to something, not thousands of years from now, but right now. You with me? Okay. That's the broader context. Here's the immediate context. In chapter 12, verse 13, someone in the crowd, remember we've got a conversation going on between Jesus and his disciples and a crowd is pressing in and listening in, someone in the crowd interrupts and says, Hey, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell my brother to share his toys, because he's not. And that prompts Jesus to say things like this. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Instead of storing up treasure for yourself, be rich in God now. Don't be anxious about food and clothing. Gentiles seek after those things. But your father knows that you need them, so seek his kingdom when? Now. Not thousands of years from now, seek his kingdom now, and these things will be added to you, which brings us to a climactic statement from Jesus that we read last week. This one will be on the screen, verses 32 through 34. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. And give to the needy. 
Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's a crucial, crucial question. When you hear Jesus talk about the kingdom of God, what do you think of? Do you think only or primarily of a future fulfillment? Or do you also think of a present reality? Let me ask that again. I want you to ponder that. When you think about the kingdom of God, do you think present reality, yes, with a future fulfillment, there is an already but not yet dynamic to this thing, but where do you place the emphasis? Is it only or primarily on one day the trumpet's going to sound, the clouds will part, and Gabriel's going to blow that trumpet, and I'm going to be out of here? Is that what you think about? Kingdom? Second coming? New Jerusalem? Every tear wiped away? Right? New heavens, new earth, is all of that true? Is all of that coming? Not a trick question. Yes. Amen. Praise to be to his name. New Jerusalem. I love that. A place we know but haven't been. A place without end. It's coming. But I think really to our own, I don't know if detriment's the right word, We've placed too much emphasis on the not yet and not near enough emphasis on the already. If Jesus was talking, is talking, about the future fulfillment of his kingdom, if that's where his primary focus is, why in the world would he look at his disciples and say, fear not, little flock, Your father's given you the kingdom out of his good pleasure. So sell. Give it away. Doesn't that just by nature, it sounds like there's something present now that we are receiving now, that the father's giving now that would compel us to go, you know what? I don't need this stuff. In fact, if I think Jesus' focus is primarily on his second coming, I think he would have said the exact opposite. I think it would have gone something like this. Fear not, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, which is going to happen thousands of years from now. So in the meantime, build your barn, store up, and just try to hold on for dear life till then. That's not what he says. The Father's giving you the kingdom now. And that's such a wonderful, amazing, awesome, present reality. Again, I said this last week, that's not a command to sell and give away. That is Jesus talking about the kind of freedom that comes when you realize my life doesn't consist in the abundance of my possessions. I can be as rich in God as I want to be, and he's giving me the kingdom. I don't have to earn it. I'll give it away. That's where Jesus is focused. It's on that basis that he says, sell and give. Because you are receiving the kingdom now. 
And it's on that basis. There's not a hard stop between verse 34 and 35. Jesus hasn't changed the subject. In the same way he would say, Fear not, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, so sell, store up treasure in heaven, have the greatest joy possible. It's on that same basis that he would say this, verse 35, stay dressed for action. Fear not, little flock, God's giving you the kingdom, sell and give away, store up, Treasure in heaven, not on earth. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And stay ready. Why? Keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once and when he, when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. Now, this is a parable. That's an easy amen, okay? We don't have to disagree on that. This is a parable. Thank you. (laughs) And what do we do with parables? We've taught you this. When you see a parable, the first thing you do is don't theologize it, don't spiritualize it, yet look for the simple, obvious point. Look for the punchline in the joke. Parables aren't jokes, but they function similar. What's the simple, obvious, non-theological point? Here, I think it's twofold. Number one, Good servants, and you know this, this is how parables work. They're so obvious. Good servants live attentively. That fair? When you read a parable and you see the point, you should go, well, duh. Good servants live attentively. Those first few words, stay dressed for action, literally in the Greek are gird up your loins which I know makes zero sense to us for the most part, but that's actually Old Testament language. You remember Exodus 12? When we're coming to the last plague in Egypt, and what was the last plague? The angel of death. And the children of Israel were spared from the the angel of death because they painted the blood on the doorpost, right? Right? If you go back and read Exodus 12, there was a whole process to that. They had to bring a lamb in. They had to kill the lamb. They had to cook the lamb. Yes, paint the blood on the doorpost. But they had to cook the lamb. They eat it, and they had a feast. And here was God's instruction through Moses to the people as they feasted on the lamb whose blood was on the doorpost to protect them from the angel of death. God said, gird up your loins. Literally, that means it's, it's, it was primarily focused on the fact that they wore long robes, right? So you can imagine, ladies, you understand this, it's hard to run in a dress. Men nowadays don't get this because we don't really wear long robes. But it was an instruction to gird them up and belt them up so at any moment you would be ready to run. Why? 
I'm bringing you out of Egypt. Eat, feast, while my judgment falls. Just makes me think of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. (laughs) But stay ready. Be ready to run at any moment because I'm bringing you out. This is what Jesus is saying. Good servants, they're ready at all times. They're on alert. They're ready for action. Even though they don't know when their master might show up, they live and they're attentive to their servant responsibilities as if, even in the middle of the night, he could show up at any moment. That's the first point. Here's the second point. Attentive servants are blessed. Why are they blessed? Did you notice what happened in the parable? When the master comes back and he finds the servants ready to greet him, what does he do? He serves them. They're rewarded for their attentiveness. So here's the simple point of the parable. Good servants live attentively, and attentive servants are rewarded. They are blessed. Simple point, right? Now we get a second parable. Verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. What's the simple point of this? Is a, I really think this is a second parable. What's the simple point of this parable? A good master, a good owner, is ready at all times because he doesn't know when a thief might come and try to plunder his house. So, to summarize both parables, good servants are blessed servants who are ready, on alert, ready for action at any moment. Good masters, good owners, they are those who are ready and attentive to owner things, master things, because they don't know at what point a thief might show up, so they're ready, they're on go, they're on alert all the time. What's the point of the two parables? Be ready. Put it in context. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Thousands of years from now? Yes, future fulfillment. But the gift of the kingdom is now. It's a present reality. So that ushers in a a kind of freedom that is foreign to us. We could sell and give away our possessions because, man, we've received the greater treasure. And like good servants or like good master owners, be ready. Stay dressed for action. Be ready to run at any moment because you don't. Here comes the application, verse 40. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Here's the way my grandfather interpreted that. Grandfather's a good man, godly man. One of the most godly men I've ever known. He could not stand the thought of going to a movie theater. And some of you who grew up in legalistic church traditions, you'll understand this sentiment. He couldn't stand the thought of going into a movie theater. Do you know why? And he said this to me and to my sister, I don't know how many times. 
What if Jesus comes back while I'm in there? In his mind, it was better for him to be covered in grease working on a lawnmower when Jesus returns than to be in a theater watching a movie. A motion picture, as he called it. Is that Jesus' point? You better, you better, you better behave. Because you don't know at what point I'm going to part the clouds and I better not find you. Is that his point? No, obviously not. That's not his point. And when our elders considered this and the flow of thought of Jesus' words here, there's just no way we could come to the conclusion that that's what he's talking about, his second coming. Rather, here's what seems so clear to me as you consider the context. Jesus is focused on alertness for his people, readiness for his people, attentiveness for his people now because something is happening now. Something, namely the kingdom of God, is breaking in. It's being given now, so stay stay ready. Stay on alert. Good servants live attentively. Good masters live attentively. Because at some point, what they don't expect to happen might happen, so they live ready. And here's what I think Jesus' point is to his people. Stay ready. Stay on alert. Be ready for action. Because you don't know at what point the Son of Man might turn his attention to you. Case in point, and I asked for Emily's permission to share this before the service, and she gave it to me. Uh, I waited till like three minutes before we started, so she felt the pressure. But about four years ago, I think maybe five, and you guys, a lot of you have heard me tell this story. I had a a problem that developed in my voice. I didn't know it was my voice at the time, but I just remember that it's, it, was hurt, it would hurt when I coughed and it would hurt when I laughed. It would even hurt when I smiled. And I remember looking at Mary one day and I said, I feel like I've injured something in there. Sure enough, I went to an ENT doctor and I had what's called a vocal cord granuloma came from years and years and years of abusing my voice, trying to lead worship and teach two services on Sunday morning for years, also battling acid reflux disease. It was just a combination of things. I had a vocal cord injury. They found it quick, fast, and in a hurry. Thank God it wasn't cancer. And the doctor prescribed, and I'll never forget the moment when he looked at me and said this, you, you need vocal therapy. And I went, What? Vocal therapy. Long story short, he introduced me to Emily. Who's a, is your technical title speech pathologist? Is that, so she's a speech pathologist. She's a medical expert. That's what we're going to call her. Medical expert when it comes to these things. And so over a period of I don't know how many weeks, I went to visit her and her colleagues, and they worked with me on using my voice better and breathing better and, and, and showing me ways in which I could allow my voice to heal but still use it, et cetera, so on and so forth. But can I just tell y'all, driving over to her office, I don't know how many times, I cannot tell you how bad my attitude was. I complained to the Lord. 
many times, Lord, as if he doesn't know, look what you've called me to do. I'm a pastor for crying out loud. I have to use my voice. What in the world? I know you're sovereign. I know this didn't happen by accident. Why in the world? I'm I'm okay. I even told the Lord this. I remember driving in my truck and I told him this. I am fine with suffering. I will gladly suffer, but why this of all things? I'll never forget. Emily started watching. She was not in church at the time. She wasn't a Christian at the time. She started watching my sermons online to try to get a sense of what I was doing wrong with my voice. And she would watch, and I could tell she was watching because occasionally she would ask me questions. Not about my voice, but about what I had taught. And then one day she said, preach me a sermon and I'll correct your breathing and other things or whatever. And so I was like, preach you a sermon in your office? In this, So I, I think I just started talking about whatever I'd taught the previous Sunday. And by the time I got done, you could feel the presence of the Lord in that office. And it wasn't long after that, she came to Christ and was baptized. And now here she sits, she's up here leading worship. You don't know at what point the Son of Man might want to make himself known in you and through you. So stay dressed for action. Stay ready. Why? Because, little flock, it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's your Father's good pleasure for you to have a treasure that doesn't grow old and it doesn't fade. And the kingdom of God, what did he teach us to pray? Father, hallow your name. Not thousands of years from now, but now. Let your kingdom Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today whatever we need to that end. And Jesus would say, I think to all of us, oh, you bet your bottom dollar I'm going to give you what you need to that end. You bet your bottom dollar I'm going to be good to you, that the Father's going to be good to you, that he's going to give you the kingdom. And here's what you need to know. Here's an action step. We're always looking for what we need to do. We talked about this when we talked about the the lawyers and the scribes. We want a set of rules to follow. We want a set of boxes to check. We want a system that we think we can manage. That's not the gospel. The gospel is... Jesus finds his people and he calls them to himself and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. Don't fear those who could kill you. Don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Don't get caught up in religious facades, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, the leaven that just a little bit could work itself through the whole lump of dough. Don't get caught up on that. You're not. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And here's all you need to do. Gird up your loins. Pull your robes up and tie the belt tight and be ready to run because you don't know at what point the kingdom is going to break in and then through you. And the Son of Man is going to make himself known 
his power, his presence, and his kingdom known in the earth. Is he going to return one day? Absolutely. Make no mistake about it. I'm candidly not exactly sure how all that's going to go down. But here's what I think is abundantly clear in Scripture. Other Scriptures, not Luke 12, but other Scriptures, Jesus makes it clear. The apostles make it clear. He's coming again. And yes, we don't know at what hour he might come. And when he comes, the kingdom will come in its fullness. Every tear will be wiped away. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Death will be no more. Sorrow will be no more. We will have new bodies. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed and we will become like him. Now we see through a glass dimly, then face to face. All that's coming. I would never minimize that in any way. I would never say that's less than. But here's what I think Jesus is focused on right here. The kingdom is breaking in now. So stay ready. Stay dressed for action. There's so much more to say. We're not done. We're going to pick right back up next week. But just for today, here's what I would suggest. Repent. No, I'm not saying be sorry that you sin occasionally. Repent means change your thinking. Change your thinking about what? That the kingdom is a present reality. God has not left us with delayed gratification only. That's part of it. The Apostle Paul would say, now we're pressed, but not crushed. We're persecuted but not abandoned. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. So that, yes, that's part of it, people. But what's also part of it is that the Father is giving us his kingdom, his rule, his reign, his power, his presence, and he's making that known now. So if need be, change your thinking about that. Ask the Lord to help you live. And this is what was so challenging and convicting to me personally. Am I living in such a way that reflects that the kingdom of God is a present reality or only a future fulfillment? It's both. It's not either or. It's both and. And I I wonder... Do we live like the kingdom of God is a present reality? And you might say, well, what would that look like? Consider the context. Jesus, what do you mean stay dressed for action? What do you mean be ready? Because you don't know at what point the master is going to show up or the thief will come. Or here's what I'm, I'm saying in clear terms. You don't know at what point the son of man might show up. What does that look like, Jesus? I think it looks like a lot of things, but just in our immediate context, don't be anxious about what you're going to eat or drink. Don't don't put on religious facades. 
Don't, don't store up treasure on earth. Don't think your life consists in the abundance of things. Be rich in God. Be so rich in God that it spills over into this, I'll sell and give to those who need because I found the greater treasure. The kingdom of God is like a treasure buried in a field. When a man finds it for joy, he sells all he has and buys the field. Live like that now. Not just because something's coming, but because something is present now. The Father's giving you his kingdom now. Blessed are those servants who are found to be awake when the Son of Man comes. Now, do you see that? Do you see that this is what Jesus is focused on here? I hope you do. If you have questions or if you disagree, let me know. We'll talk about it, one of the elders. But I think if we're to heed Jesus' words, we're going to have to realize he's talking to us about a present reality, more so in Luke 12 than a future fulfillment. So we need to stay ready for action. Let's pray. Lord, the last thing I want to do is be unfaithful to your word. And I think, I think that we're seeing, we're hearing what it is that you're focused on in this text. I think if you were here talking to Res Church the way you were talking to your disciples 2,000 years ago, this is what you would be telling us. You would be telling us, stay ready. Stay dressed for action. Don't be lulled to sleep by the things that go on in the culture around you, in the world around you. Be ready because the kingdom is breaking in now. It's being given to you now. So I pray that we would be like those blessed servants, that we would be like that ready master, not knowing at what point that you might take the most, I don't know, the strangest circumstance going on in our lives and use it for your glory. I pray that we would be ready. Holy Spirit, teach us. Teach us to live ready, on alert, that we would not be afraid, but we would welcome the gift of your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everyone said amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.